Hi, this is Father Neil here, and welcome to the April 19th episode of the podcast Catechism with Father Neil. Today we look at numbers 811 to 822 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Paragraph 3. The Church is one, holy, Catholic and apostolic. 811. This is the sole Church of Christ, which in the creed we profess to be one, holy, Catholic and apostolic. These four characteristics, inseparably linked with each other, indicate essential features of the Church and her mission. The Church does not possess them of herself. It is Christ who, through the Holy Spirit, makes his Church one, holy, Catholic and apostolic. And it is he who calls each to realise each of these qualities. 8.12 Only faith can recognise that the Church possesses these properties from her divine source. But their historical manifestations are signs that also speak clearly to human reason. As the First Vatican Council noted, the Church herself, with her marvellous propagation, eminent holiness and inexhaustible fruitfulness in everything good, her Catholic unity and invincible stability is a great and perpetual motive of credibility and an irrefutable witness of her divine mission. The Church is one. The sacred mystery of the Church's unity. 813. The Church is one because of her source. The highest exemplar and source of this mystery is the unity in the Trinity of Persons of one God, the Father, and the Son, in the Holy Spirit. The Church is one because of her founder. For the Word made flesh, the Prince of Peace, reconciled all men to God by his cross, restoring the unity of all in one people and one body. The Church is one because of her soul. It is the Holy Spirit dwelling in those who believe, pervading and ruling over the entire Church, who brings about that wonderful communion of the faithful and joins them together so intimately in Christ, that he is the principle of the Church's unity. Unity is of the essence of the Church. What an astounding mystery! There is one Father of the universe, one Logos of creation, and also one Holy Spirit, everywhere one and the same. There is also one Virgin become Mother, and I should like her, I should like to call her Church. 8.14 From the, from the beginning this one church has been marked by a great diversity, which comes from both the variety of God's gifts and the diversity of those who receive them. Within the unity of the people of God, a multiplicity of peoples and cultures is gathered together. Among the church's members, there are different gifts, offices, conditions and ways of life. Holding a rightful place in the communion of the church, there are also particular churches that retain their own traditions. The great richness of such diversity is not opposed to the Church's unity, yet sin and the burden of its consequences constantly threaten the gift of unity so that the Apostle has to exhort Christians to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 8.15 What are these bonds of unity? Above all, charity binds everything together with perfect harmony. 
but the unity of the pilgrim church is also assured by visible bonds of communion. A profession of one faith received from the apostles, common celebration of divine worship, especially of the sacraments, apostolic succession through the sacrament of holy orders, maintaining the fraternal concord of God's family. 8.16. The sole church of Christ is that which our Saviour, after his resurrection, entrusted to Peter's pastoral care, commissioning him and the other apostles to extend and rule it. The church constituted and organised as a society in the present world subsists in, subsisted in, the Catholic Church, which is governed by the successor of Peter and by the bishops in communion with him. The Second Vatican's Council's decree on ecumenism explains, for it is through Christ's Catholic Church alone, which is the universal help towards salvation, that the fullness of the means of salvation can be obtained. It is to be it, it, it was to be the apostolic college alone, of which Peter is the head, that we believe that our Lord entrusted all the blessings of the new covenant in order to establish on earth the one body of Christ into which all those should be fully incorporated who belong in any way to the people of God. Wounds to Unity, 817. In fact, in this one and only Church of God, from its very beginnings, there arose certain rifts, which the apostles strongly censure as damnable, but in subsequent centuries, much more serious dissensions appeared and large communities became separated from full communion with the Catholic Church, for which, often enough, men on both sides were to blame. The ruptures that wound the unity of Christ's body, here we must distinguish heresy, apostasy and schism, do not occur without human sin. Where there are sins, there are also divisions, schisms, heresies and disputes. Where there is virtue, however, there, are, there also are harmony and unity, from which arise the one heart and one soul of all believers. 8.18 However, one cannot change, one cannot charge with the sin of the separation those who at the present are born into these communions that resulted from such separation, and in them and are brought up to the faith of Christ. And the Catholic Church accepts them with respect and affection as brothers. All have been justified by faith in baptism, are incorporated into Christ, and therefore have a right to be called Christians, and with good reason are accepted as brothers in the Lord by the children of the Catholic Church. 8.19 Furthermore, many elements of sanctification and truth are found outside the visible confines of the Catholic Church. The written word of God the life of grace, faith, hope and charity, with other interior gifts of the Holy Spirit, as well as visible elements, Christ's Spirit uses these churches and ecclesial communities as means of salvation whose power derives from the fullness of grace and truth that the Church has entrusted, that Christ has entrusted to the Catholic Church. All these blessings come from Christ and lead to him and are in themselves calls to Catholic unity, towards unity, 820. Christ bestowed unity on his church from the beginning. The unity, we believe, subsists in the Catholic Church as something she can never lose, and we hope that it will continue to increase until the end of time. 
Christ always gives his church the gift of unity, but the church must always pray and work to maintain and reinforce and perfect the unity that Christ wills for her. This is why Jesus himself prayed at the hour of his passion and does not cease praying to his Father for the unity of his disciples, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be one in us, so that the world may know that you have sent me. The desire to recover the unity of all Christians is a gift of Christ, a call of the Holy Spirit. 821. Certain things are required in order to respond adequately to this call. A permanent renewal of the Church in greater fidelity to her vocation. Such renewal is the driving force of the movement towards unity. Conversion of heart as the faithful try to live holier lives according to the Gospel. For it is the unfaithfulness of the members of Christ's, to Christ's gift which cause divisions. Prayer in common, because change of heart and holiness of life along with public and private prayer for the unity of Christians should be regarded as the soul of the whole ecumenical movement and means and merits the name spiritual ecumenism, fraternal knowledge of each other. Ecumenical formation of the faithful and especially of priests, dialogue among theologians and meetings among Christians of the different churches and communities, collaboration among Christians in various areas of service to mankind. 822. Concern for achieving unity involves the whole church, faithful and clergy alike. But we must realise that this holy objective, the reconciliation of all Christians, in the unity of the one and only Church of Christ, transcends human powers and gifts. That is why we place our hope in the prayer of Christ for the Church, in the love of the Father for us, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, this long section, again, talking about uh, the Catholic Church and this, um, this principle in theology that the Church is one. The Church is one Holy Catholic ap Apostolic. But here talking about the Church being one. The, the Church, because Jesus founded one Church. He didn't found a franchise of churches that everybody can take it and, uh, and run with it. He founded one Church. One Church. Just one. That has a communion throughout the world. That's spread out of many na over many nations. But ultimately is one Church. And this is what we're called to form part of. And then there's this teaching on ecumenism. Ecumenism is the, um, the practice of trying to seek unity between the different Christian denominations. Because the, unfortunately the Christian denominations have split. That there was one church once upon a time in the very beginning. There was one church. And then around the time of the Council of Nicaea in the early 4th century certain churches separated from the Catholic Church. Um, that there was separation again. Um, the separation is wrong. All separation of the church is wrong. All breaking of the church into factions is wrong. And the fact that certain churches broke communion with the Catholic Church is wrong. It's caused by misunderstanding and by sin. Sin of both those within the Catholic Church and those outside the Catholic Church. 
that certain times certain groups of people left the Catholic Church. On the other hand, many times the members of the Catholic Church gave them very good excuses to leave. So there's sin both sides. However, the Catechism teaches that we cannot blame the Christians today, the members of these other churches, for, for leaving. It's not their sin that they left. It's the, the, the people at the very beginning of these, uh, of these splits, both inside the church and outside the Catholic Church, that caused that, that, caused that, that sinned. And again, these sins have consequences. Every sin has a consequence. Every single sin has a consequence. And here we see the sins against unity of the church ultimately cause these different separations. I think, first of all, in the 4th century, the, um, the separation between the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Churches, the non-Calcedonian Eastern Orthodox Churches. There are groups of, uh, I suppose, the Armenians, the, the Copts in Egypt, the Ethiopian Church, uh, many of the churches, in the traditional churches in, in India, uh, broke around this time from communion with the Catholic Church. Then there's a bigger break with the, um, in the 11th century with the uh, separation between the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Churches, the Russian Orthodox, especially today. At the time, it was with the Greek Orthodox Church, the mother church of the Russians. Uh, so the, the Patriarch of Constantinople, this mutual excommunication between the Bishop of Rome and the Bishop of Constantinople, which is today's Istanbul. And uh, this broke the communion with the Orthodox churches, that would be Russia, Bulgaria, a lot of Eastern Europe, uh, the, the Russian, uh, again, these different Orthodox churches broke from communion with Rome. Then in the 15th, 16th century, you had the, um, the break between the Catholic Church and the different Protestant groupings. That, again, the Catechism, like many magisterial documents, is hesitant to call Protestants churches because they don't have a Eucharist. They don't have a valid celebration of the Eucharist, whereas the Orthodox and the non-Calcedonian Eastern Orthodox do have valid Eucharists, have valid sacraments. So because the Protestants don't have valid sacraments, the, the Catholic Church prefers to call them ecclesial communi communions because it is the Eucharist that makes the Church. And if you don't have the Eucharist, you don't have the Church. So anyway, but again, it's a technical uh, distinction. I mean, it's not that it's the end of the world if the Lutherans call themselves a church or the Anglicans or Episcopalians call themselves a church or the Evangelicals call themselves a church. I mean, they're free to do what they want. And as I say, that's probably the best word for them to use. But on the really theoretical, technical language of the Catholic Church, they wouldn't be considered as churches until they managed to retrieve a valid Eucharist. So these churches have have broken with the Catholic Church, the Protestants especially we're looking at now, and that they breaking with the Catholic Church, they lose something. So we say the fullness of the means of salvation are, are, are present in the Catholic Church. That doesn't mean that other people don't have some of the truth. They do. They do. All these other churches have a lot of the truth. In a sense, we have more in common than what separates us. Yet, the Catholic Church says that the fullness of the means of salvation are present in the Catholic Church, all of the means, so that there are devotions that the other churches don't have. Many of the other churches don't have sacraments. So really everything is present in the Catholic Church. That doesn't mean that a given Catholic will be more holy or more likely to be saved than a given Lutheran or uh, a given Bulgarian Orthodox person. 
That isn't the case. It's how well you use these means of salvation that you have. As I say, the Catholics have a bigger armory to choose from. They have more instances, more examples of this that they can use. But it's available for everybody. And everybody's invited to it. And this, uh, and again, the churches today have to work for unity. Unity of the church is the big thing. To work for unity. That the churches are called to work together. Because it's one of the biggest scandals in the world to have more than one church. It's not right. Jesus founded one church and the fact that we have broken. Humanity has broken the church into different factions. Is wrong, is sinful. And we are invited especially since the Second Vatican Council for Catholics, but we're invited to try to work for unity, to try to work for reintegration, that it's possible that the churches can come back into communion. That doesn't mean that the Protestant churches or the Orthodox churches will have to surrender everything. They can keep an awful lot of their heritage. We can see this in the different Orthodox groups that have come into communion as with Rome as the different uh, Eastern Rite Catholic churches or more recently with the ordinariates of the Anglicans and Episcopalians who've entered back into communion with Rome and they bring with them a lot of their customs, they bring with them aspects of their liturgy and again, that you know we, we try to accommodate as much as possible but that we have to work for unity. The Catholic Church has to work for unity. All Christians have to work for unity. This is the big call that each one of us has. And so we can leave it here for today and tomorrow we'll, we'll continue and tomorrow we'll look at 8.23 to 8.29 of the Catechism. God bless.